This Slate Spoiler Special is brought to you by Shutterstock.com. With over 700,000 high-quality video clips, Shutterstock helps you take your creative projects to the next level. For 30% off your new account, go to Shutterstock.com and use offer code SPOILER5. Hi, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, here with the Slate Spoiler Special podcast on The Great Gatsby, the new Baz Luhrmann adaptation of the F. Scott Fitzgerald novel. And joining me in Slate Studios is David Hagland. David, how should I identify you? You're the editor of Browbeat, the culture blog at Slate. That's right. Correct? Yep. And you're going to write something on, on The Great Gatsby, the novel. Yeah, I'm going to write something about the ways that the movie departs from the novel and the ways that it doesn't. So let's just start off with a yay or nay. How did you feel overall about the movie? Then we'll get into the details. I enjoyed it. You know, it's an extravagant movie, and some of its extravagances are extravagantly bad, but many of them are extravagantly good. And overall, I just, I had a blast. Yeah, I have to say, I I hated it less than I thought I would. (laughs) And I tried to go in with a Zen mind. I'm not a Baz Luhrmann person. I've essentially, except for Strictly Ballroom, I think pretty much detested all of his movies that I've seen. And uh, and so I was not looking forward to this. But I will say that it is two hours of immersion in all kinds of visual pleasure, if nothing else. Right, and I was worried that it would be boring. I had sort of seen a little bit of scuttlebutt here and there on Twitter and I and I do think the movie opens a little more slowly than it should, as we can. Gatsby takes a long time to yeah. enter the scene, and uh, and there's this whole frame story which we'll talk about. But so I was worried that I would that it would sort of put me to sleep a little bit, and it definitely didn't do that. I mean, I yeah, enjoyed it, it definitely catches finish. you up in, in times, yeah, at times in, in ridiculous ways, and at times in ways that really I don't think do justice to the to the book. But I mean, can this book really be adequately filmed? That's another whole question. But okay, so let's get into the details. I think we should start by peeling the onion because this has a, a frame story around it as you mentioned, that the novel doesn't have. Um, do you want to help help put it together with me? So we open on Nick Carraway, as we do in the novel, right? The novel's narrator, played yes. by Tobey Maguire here. But there's a twist. Yeah, he's in a sanitarium, which is just a complete uh, invention of the screenplay. And he's speaking to a therapist of some kind. And we see the, the, this, this doctor uh, filling out forms and noting that, uh, that Nick is morbidly alcoholic, and uh, he's recovering for, essentially from this experience that he had in right. New York. Right, he has like Gatsby PTSD. Yes, exactly. He's got. He's sort of. He's lost his his mind, which I actually think, on some level, is is faithful to the spirit of the book. I, I do think there's a, there's a suggestion in the book that that Nick is haunted by his experience, that he's really kind of shaken by it. And there's that line early in the book that is not, does not show up in the movie where he says he wanted the, the world to be in uniform and, and at a moral, you know, standing at attention, a moral attention forever, um, because what he saw was so upsetting. Uh, but, uh, I, you know, this, this sort of sanitarian thing is certainly not at all in the book. And, and the other thing that this adds is that uh, the, the doctor tells Nick that he should start writing down his experiences. And so Nick essentially becomes F. Scott Fitzgerald, yes, right? He, he writes be- the story. He becomes the author. And the, again, in terms of having just looked at the book, there is a moment where Nick says, um, the man who gives his name to this book. So Nick does acknowledge the bookishness of what we're reading. But otherwise, I mean, yeah, so we, we see him first writing things down you know, by longhand. Eventually, he switches to a typewriter. Uh, it becomes a, a novel, and he titles it at the end. You know, it says Gatsby, and then he adds with a, with a flourish, he adds by hand, The Great. Right. And it says, you know, by Nick Carraway. So it sort of weirdly has become this novel by Nick, uh, which, again, not totally untrue to the spirit of the book, in my opinion, 
but is uh, an invention and, and sort of is a way, I think, of, of as Lerman has said in interviews, one of getting some of Fitz, more of Fitzgerald's language into the movie and having it sort of feel appropriate because his language is so flowery at times and also a way of kind of explaining Nick's presence, um, which does sometimes feel superfluous. Yeah. Well, I mean, Nick is given more to do in this than he is in the in the 1974 version. I think Sam Waterston plays Nick in that, and, and he really is just a kind of bland observer. I mean, Tobey Maguire has a, has a pretty big role in this. You really would basically say he's the main character rather than Gatsby, right? He's, he's observing, but he's in almost every scene. Yeah, and it begins and ends with him, and it's really sort of about his... Uh, journey in a way. I mean, it's about uh, what this has done to him. I have to say that the frame story about him writing the novel, although it was nice to have an excuse to, to throw some some of Fitzgerald's sentences in there wholesale, was really hokey just in the way that any kind of image of an artist at work in a movie can be, especially when Lerman chose to do this very splashy thing of having the words at first in in Nick's handwriting and later in TypeScript appear on the screen and kind of float through the air around him. Yeah, overall it feels like a mistake. It doesn't really add enough to the movie. There are nice moments, like at one point uh, in the book, Nick says that uh, that it, he's only been drunk twice in his life, which I have to say in the book that kind of contradicts the whole idea that he goes on to become a morbid alcoholic <laughs> unless he's lying. But in the movie, there's a funny moment where he's writing that by longhand and you see that he's crossed out once and written twice, as though he has in some ways been in denial about his alcoholism. Yeah, you're right. That's kind of fun. And then there's a moment that I think the, the, that same sentence, he says, the second time was that afternoon, right? And then the words that afternoon kind of become like floral. They take right. on like this, this print and it's kind of gaudy and silly, but it's kind of great. Yeah, the whole thing is gaudy. I mean, the most um, sort of, I, I would probably say ridiculous moment uh, with regard to putting Fitzgerald's language on the screen is when uh, Lerman is trying to deal with this very difficult passage where uh, Gatsby himself, basically, it's it's not entirely clear whose perspective we're we're getting when this is when we see this description, but um, is talking about when he, um, you know, first kissed Daisy, and is saying that he knew that when he kissed her, his mind would never romp again like the mind of God. I, I, it's, it's a line that is going to be difficult to deal with, no matter who you are, Boz Lerman or you know Terrence Malick or whatever. But um, it, that is sort of typed on the stars, mm-hmm. and then I think a shooting star goes by. <laughs> And I mean, yeah, it's it's preposterous, but it's also sort of preposterous in the book. I mean, the language of the Great Gatsby itself is so often over the top. So. Yeah, but but literalizing the preposterousness, yeah. well, we can get to that later, but there's also some moments when, as is described in the book, where Gatsby is at the end of his dock, right, reaching across the water, reaching toward the green light that represents Daisy's house on the other side. And uh, and, and just the literal reaching and seeing Leonardo DiCaprio's chubby, beringed hand kind of reaching into the frame just seemed, what does that add to the to the to the image of him reaching. Yeah, not a lot, although I was just glad that it wasn't reaching out to us since the movie's in 3D. I was worried <laughs> you would get his sort of Leo's hand. Yeah, we in. are the green light yeah. pursued by Leo's hand. I mean, I, I have to say, so that's another another sort of uh, aspect of this movie that has kicked up a lot of attention, the fact that he put it in 3D. I, I thought that 3D was sort of fine. I, I, I don't have strong feelings about 3D in general, um, but I, I don't know that it added a great deal. There was a lot of the kind of snow and confetti kind of coming out of the screen. 
Um, the credit sequence looked kind of neat. There's oh, a moment when we, cool. we enter into – there's this logo they created, this great Art Deco logo for, for Gatsby, right? Like a JG for Jay Gatsby. And, and we kind of enter into it, right? It starts yeah. off in black and white looking kind of vintage, like the film is fake scratched up. And then suddenly it goes into this bright color and we kind of zoom into the logo. And, and that was neat. Yeah, and at the end you, you come out of it. So there's this idea that, yeah, you're sort of going into this world and then leaving the world. And yeah, I it's kind of elegantly done. framed, I yeah. will say. All right, so let's get to, to Leo DiCaprio, who plays Gatsby. A nice piece of casting, I think. Absolutely. He's, he, he's sort of perfect, I think. Yeah, he really gets it. And I'm not sure he could have done it, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. But now he has some kind of, you know, he has a sadness and gravitas that, that makes him able to do it. There's some critic, I can't remember if it was Edelstein or, or Denby, I think it was one of the Davids, said that uh, DiCaprio, he has this sort of man-boy quality. You know, that he's, you know, obviously he was famous as a very young actor and he was so boyish then. And he's grown up in a slightly odd way where you can sort of see the boyish features surrounded by this. And I think that's perfect for, and this is the point that uh, one of the Davids makes, I think that's perfect for for Gatsby because, you know, there's this idea that he had this sort of, you know, youthful idealism that he has not let go of, though he's gotten older. And you see that in DiCaprio, and I I think that works perfectly. So the moment he enters is is pretty far into the movie, right? And it's a very spectacular um, party scene, and his entrance is staged really spectacularly. Can you describe that? This is maybe my favorite moment of the whole movie. So... uh, Gatsby lives next to Nick. You know, Nick has has taken this little house um, for $80 a month and, you know, next to Gatsby's mansion. And he finally goes to one of these enormous parties that Gatsby's always throwing. And he's, you know, wandering around. I think in the movie he's he's already um, connected with uh, Jordan Baker there, who's a friend of his cousin, Daisy Buchanan. Right, the golf star. Yes. Uh, so so he's seen her and she, he, she's the only person he knows at, at the party. Uh, and then he's, you know, he's hearing these rumors about who Gatsby is. Oh, I heard he killed a man. I heard he's a spy for the Germans or whatever. And then you hear this voice off screen saying, "Oh, weren't you in the, you know, in the army?" Um, I, th- I think I recognize you. Someone is saying that to to Nick, and you hear him talking. And there's a there's a little flash of you see this ring that in the movie becomes. Uh, sort of symbolic in some way. For, it has the logo on it, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, I think it, has it does. The JG. It has the JG, which I, I don't think that any specific ring is mentioned in the book, but whatever. You, you, I think people, certainly if you know the book, you know that, oh, this is him, but you're not seeing him for a minute or so. And, uh, and then, um, you know, uh, Nick says, oh, I haven't met Gatsby. And the camera kind of starts to pan up. I don't remember exactly how Lerman does this, but right up to Leo's big, beautiful face, and we haven't seen it yet. And he says, but I'm Gatsby. And as he's saying this, um, uh, Rhapsody in Blue, <laughs> which has been playing in the background, like hits the big, you know. The climax, big, The right? big climax, the moment you remember from, you and know, And fireworks start Manhattan. to go off. And fireworks are just going off like crazy blue fireworks in the background. See, I thought that moment was so oh, cheesy. I loved it. I thought it was perfect. I mean, it is cheesy. It's 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 just the use of Rhapsody in Blue is just sort of you know what's the very first piece of music you think of when you think of the jazz age, Rhapsody in Blue. It just seemed like a, a very obvious music choice that's kind of been stolen by Woody Allen and other people who have used it. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's so familiar, but at the same time, I mean, that for me, I mean, the book feels like that too. It's just this is, I guess, you know, another approach would be to somehow try to make it new rather than to kind of revel in all of the connotations that it has taken on over the years. Uh, I think Lerman does more of, of the latter. But I, I think that that works because it's, it's impossible to come to this story without thinking about everything that's been said about it since. 
um, you know, there's just so much association with it. So I like, I mean, it just worked that that's such a great piece of music. And yes, you've heard it a million times. Um, but it somehow f- seemed fitting to me. And it seemed in keeping with the idea, just the, his whole self-presentation, that DiCaprio as Gatsby, you know, he he's trying to be something that he's not. So he is borrowing things, right? He is borrowing, like, his idea of what a rich man should be. And so somehow that piece of music seemed, seemed, seemed like the one that should be playing in the background. Yeah, I don't know that I have any, any real basis for my criticism of his choice of Rhapsody in Blue, except that it was just sort of like, oh, please. That is also very atypical with the rest of Lerman's music choices, because most of them were completely anachronistic, right? They weren't 20s music at all. There was Jay-Z and Kanye, and what else was on the soundtrack? Alicia Keys. There's a lot of Lana Del Rey. She has this song, uh, you know, Will You Still Love Me When I'm No Longer Young and Beautiful. Is it written for this movie? I think it was. Um, It's at least sort of being premiered with on you know on the soundtrack I think and it's it runs throughout because you sometimes hear it sung but you also hear the the melody a fair amount um, and he also he plays around a bit with there's um, that uh, Beyonce song Crazy in Love but it's done by the Brian Setzer Orchestra or something I mean it's a, it's sort of like a, a jazz Brian Ferry right? Brian Ferry uh, it's like a jazz version of that song um, so you hear that as well so he's kind of mixing the you know the present, you know, sort of contemporary music with something that sounds vaguely like music of the time. Yeah. And there, I mean, I have no, that's an interesting approach. It doesn't always work, but it's, it's, it's cool. And the soundtrack would be great to own. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the party scene in general is done pretty well. So, I mean, this book is basically a series of big set pieces. The first one a- after the, that frame story with Nick in the, the hospital, which Lerman added, is, uh, is when Nick goes to the Buchanan's and he sees Daisy and Tom and, and meets Jordan. Uh, the next one, I believe, is uh, either the big party at the apartment or this party at Gatsby's. But, you know, it's just kind of a series of these of these kind of grandly staged So it's things. kind of made for Baz Luhrmann in a way, right? I mean, even though the, the, I think the tone departs significantly from that of the book, which is this very, you know, delicate sort of tone See, poem. I disagree. I think that the book is purple and gaudy and loud and so the movie, to me, while not all of its attempts to to do that visually worked, I, I actually think it's. But the book really is the also book. dreamlike, right? Yes, the, bu- the book yes, is dreamlike, yes. and the movie, just by virtue of being a movie, but also by virtue of being a Baz Luhrmann movie, literalizes everything. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for instance, that moment we were just talking about with DiCaprio, it's it's you know sort of understated in the in the book. I mean, just oh, I'm Gatsby. You know, I mean, but how do you? <laughs> exactly. I mean, you, when you do it visually, you have to. I mean, it's just—it's a whole different. It's. I mean, it's—it's it's a fascinating study in in adaptation for that reason, because you know, in a book, you can you can leave such moments sort of to the reader's mind in, in a way, but in a movie, you can't. You have to convey what's happening visually, and Gatsby has such an effect on on Nick. That's you know, that's the point. I mean, that he sort of there's something about him. There's something about the way he looks at you and the way he talks to you that makes you feel special because you're with him. That's something I think is really well done, actually. I think the best relationship in this movie is the Gatsby-Nick relationship, more more so than what happens between Carey Mulligan and, and Leonardo DiCaprio, which a lot of it feels like I can see the dialogue on the page, you know, or right. in the on the book's pages. Yeah, what did you think of Carey Mulligan as Daisy? I mean, I actually think it's a it's a kind of a terrible part for an actress to play. She she looks the part. She looks incredible. I don't, I don't think she gets to do a heck of a lot. Right. 
And Mia Farrow was sort of in the same boat in the in the earlier adaptation. You know, they have to represent something, right? Her voice sounds like money, a line that I kept waiting for from the book that never, ever happens in the movie. But she is more of a, a symbol of, of the unattainable and of, you know, wealth and desire and all these things than an actual character. Yeah, although I thought Lerman and, and uh, his uh, co-screenwriter, Craig Pierce, I think is his name, did a pretty good job of conveying, uh, you know, Daisy's knowledge of that, right? She's aware on some level that that these men are making symbols of her. And there's the whole thing where eventually Gatsby says, you know, she, I mean, she falls back in love with Gatsby, you know, when he when he comes back after like another great set piece, the one at, at Nick's house with the, the tea, which we should talk about. But um, she falls back in love with him, but then Gatsby insists that she tell Tom that he never loved, that she never loved him. Right, that's crucial to him that he that she has always only loved Gatsby, which is also directly from the book, right? Yes, that scene where they all go faithful. get drunk at the plaza and they have yeah. that horrible. So good. Row. See, there's so, there's so much. Uh, I mean, there are great scenes in the book, but I, and I think they're well realized. And that's another one. Um, but she know, and she tells Gatsby, "Look, that's, I can't do that. You're asking too much. Like I did love him. I'm a person. I'm not this idea that you have." And I think that that uh, that kind of vision of of Daisy is pretty well. Uh, conveyed in the movie, uh, and I think yeah, I, li- I liked her performance. That there are times uh, that work better than others. I think that she's a, an interesting actress because she does have this. I loved her voice. I was amazed too that the line about it sounding like money never came up because I thought she nailed it just in terms of the sound of Daisy. Uh, but you know, but actually, um, she also can do sort of plain and and mousy, and you know, it's sort of surprising when. I, I don't know. I, I, Daisy is this idea, so you kind of expect her to to look and be a certain way the whole time. And and Mulligan is a little more complicated than that. But I, I think overall it, it it works well. Practically all the casting choices worked really well. Yeah, Jordan Baker, whoever this actress is, Elizabeth Debicki. I guess she's Australian or something. I spent the whole time thinking, is that Rooney Mara? Because she looks right. sort of like a taller Rooney Mara. A taller, a stronger. Rooney I, th- Mara. I seriously she's... thought, is Rooney Mara walking on some sort of higher track so that she looks taller <laughs> than Tobey Maguire? But she really, I mean, if you. Scoured the world for someone who looks like the Jordan Baker described in this book. Yeah, and the descriptions of Jordan Baker in the novel are so great. She's one of my favorite characters in the book just because who doesn't know someone like Jordan Baker? You know, this impenetrably cool person. Yes, exactly. Although, you know, one small departure from the book is that um, the relationship between her and Nick is not fleshed out at all in the movie. I mean, in in the book, they become romantically involved. Uh, it's not a hugely important part of the story, but it is part of the story, and I think that probably Lerman decided he didn't have time. Yeah, Toby Maguire didn't get any action at all. Well, right. I guess that one, that one night, the one drunken day. Yes, when he, which okay, so that's uh, another set piece: the apartment party that where Tom takes uh, Nick into town uh, with Myrtle, uh, Isla Fisher, who's his mistress. Yeah, his mistress, and he has an apartment for her in the city, and so they're going to have a party, and she's going to invite her sister, and he's you know they're going to have a riotous good time. Um, another thing that is, I think, basically true to the spirit of the book, but which they, you know, they take a lot of liberties. Uh, it, if I'm not mistaken, um, Nick in the movie is slipped some kind of pill, right, by this woman. She kind of gives him something and says, "Oh, I get it from a doctor in Queen." That none of that happens in the book. There are no pills involved. It's just a lot of drinking. Um, and then at the end, he says, "Oh, I don't know how I got home." And you see him kind of in his underwear outside. His, in fact, you know, he took the train, but he did, <laughs> he did get drunk and kind of wake up next to a guy. You know, it 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 feels. And I, there was another, maybe my second favorite moment in the movie uh, takes place in that scene when he's looking out the window, 
And this is, I think, actually one of the best uses of 3D. He's looking at all – it looks like Rear Window. It looks like Hitchcock's Rear Window. And he's looking at all these scenes in different apartments. And they're sort of popping out of the building. And he talks about how he feels like he's both, you know – an observer and observed, and is that text all from the book too? I'm within and without. Within and without, yeah, yeah. I think you know that sort of some of the text has moved around, and there are things that Nick says in one place that it's put in another place in the movie. But that that thing about being within and without is directly from the book. Yeah, that is an, a nice use of 3D, and just a nice use of the kind of crazy camera movements that Baz Luhrmann always likes. You know, there's a lot of weird zooms out of the city, and you know, then back to Toby Maguire, and he's doubled. He sees himself outside and right. inside the building, and it's kind of kooky, but it's kind of great. Yeah, and, and you know, of course, in terms of uh, just the over the topness of this movie, there's also a black man with a sack. Saxophone wailing on a, <laughs> on a patio. I mean, everything is sort of just then turned up another. Notch. Well, there's definitely an argument to be made. It's a very 20s thing, but I don't think it's particularly interrogated by Lerman. But there's a lot of exoticizing of, you know, Josephine Baker like black dancers and that black saxophonist or trumpeter or whatever yeah. he is on the roof. So I actually thought, so this is from the book, and I thought Lerman actually, I give him a lot of credit for this. I think that he. Um, very deliberately kept in those moments. So, for instance, at that first lunch at the Buchanan's, Tom goes on about this book by a guy named Goddard, I think, um, called uh, The Rise of the Colored Empires, I think. It's a real book, if I'm not mistaken. I'll have to Google this later. Um, But it's this sort of horribly racist tome about how, you know, colored people are taking over. Right, some kind of eugenic modernist thing. Yeah, like, you know, I mean, it's a white supremacist book. And, And Tom brings this up in the book, and then later there's a scene where they're going into the city and Nick notices these very well-dressed black people having champagne or something. Also in the movie, it, it, that's that scene. In, in that case, it's scored to uh, some Jay-Z song. I can't remember which one. Um, I, I actually think Lerman was sort of calling attention to that aspect of the book in, a, in an intelligent way, that this is partly about um, you know, this kind of white fear of the way the world is changing. So that moment when they see the well-dressed group of black people having champagne is in the book? Is in the book. I don't remember that at all. Yeah, it's, it's, and, and it's, I mean, it's worded. I mean, where Fitzgerald comes down in all this, it's not an entirely clear. I mean, certainly he uses language that we wouldn't now. He talks about sort of the two bucks in the back of the car or whatever. Um, but it is this idea that he's seen these kind of, in fact, I think in the, I think in the book they might have a white driver. I mean, it's, it is deliberately this kind of They reversal. have a white driver in the movie. They do. Too. There you go. So it's, it's deliberately this reversal of, of racial expectations and I think maybe Nick in the book says something like you know in the city anything is possible it's sort of right. this idea that things are topsy-turvy and you know everything's changing and I, so I, I thought because he put in those scenes and that dialogue about you know this, this book that Tom's reading when you see the you know Josephine Baker like dancers at these it's in, it's in your mind you're, you're aware of um, kind of the you know you're aware of the racism at play in a, in a way right and that there's another world coexisting kind of beneath the, the surface of theirs that they don't really know anything about yeah and are and are sort of you know like you said exoticizing and and I mean an, another um, instance of that that I I think he handles sort of interestingly uh, Lerman does is Meyer Wilsheim uh, because Meyer Wilsheim is the the gangster 
that uh, the Jewish financier in the yes, book, right? That that Gatsby's involved with, who, who has who's, who's a very anti-Semitic, oily kind of characterization yeah, in the book. It, absolutely, and and it's another thing about the book that's sort of uncomfortable. That you know, I mean, Fitzgerald's depiction of him, I th- I don't think you can call it anything but anti-Semitic. Like there's all this attention to his nose and his hair and this sort of weird way. Um, and Lerman uh, cast this Indian actor, Amitabh Bachchan, yeah. right, a huge Bollywood superstar. Yeah, who's I think great and very good at the part, and he gets. I mean, Lerman is kind of saving Fitzgerald a little bit in a way because he conveys the otherness to, uh, you know, to Gatsby and and Nick of this character without making it anti-Semitic. Yeah, it's it's true. That's kind of a racially unmarked characterization, right? But but the mere fact that he's Indian kind of throws the whole thing off. Yeah, and it's I mean, you and you and you're aware of that. So that it's you know, again with this kind of rise of the colored empires book in the back of your mind, it's like, oh, "Okay, well here's this, you know, this man from the underworld and he's not white." And you notice that and that's, you know, significant and called attention to. All right. Well, we have more set pieces that I want to get to, but let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. This episode of the Slate Spoiler Special is brought to you by shutterstock.com. With over 700,000 high-quality video clips, Shutterstock helps you take your creative projects to the next level. At Shutterstock.com, you'll find the perfect video for your next creative project, whether it's for your website, advertisement, multimedia presentation, or other type of film project. Shutterstock sources video clips from around the world and puts them at your fingertips. And they add 10,000 new video clips each week, so every time you visit, you'll find something new. You can try Shutterstock today by signing up for a free account, no credit card needed. Just start an account, begin using Shutterstock to help imagine what your next project could be like, and save the video selections you find to your clip box. Once you decide to purchase, use the offer code SPOILER5, and new accounts will receive 30% off any package. That's Shutterstock.com, and again, for 30% off a new account, you just use the offer code SPOILER5. Spoiler special thanks Shutterstock for their support. All right, so back to Gatsby. So we haven't really talked about the the look of the movie, which is hugely important. It was really my favorite thing about it. I mean, even though I had more eye rolling than you, I think at some of the I thought oh, the, the the points that were hit overly hard, I was completely wrapped up in just the lushness and the design of the whole thing. And uh, and fascinatingly, the production designer and the costume designer is the same person, Catherine Martin, who must have been one busy woman during that shoot. Yeah, incredibly busy. Although maybe that helps explain how of a piece it all feels. I mean, everything is sort of you know from Gatsby's pink suit to you know the 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 look of the lawns. I will say the one. Um, aspect of production design that 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 I couldn't quite get into was the look of both Nick's place and to some extent the look of Gatsby's the interiors you the, mean no the 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 exterior so like i mean Nick you know this sort of modest house is apparently in the enchanted forest or something i mean there's just there's all of these tr- i guess it's they, like the dwarf's cottage or something yeah like and and i think you know i Maybe he wanted to have enough with sort of the shadows. And it is summer, so, you know, it's everything is lush. But it just it felt a little bit like something out of Disney. And likewise, um, Gatsby's own mansion sort of looks looked, like the Disney castle. Looks a little like bit. the Disney castle. <laughs> Which, you know, I, and I will say, I mean, you mentioned before uh, all of Lerman's zooms. Um, there are a few kind of across the. You know, across the, the water, separating yeah. West Egg and East Egg, which I, I didn't didn't quite do it for me. It, it felt a little bit goofy. Yeah, I mean, there's just yeah, there always has to be. You can't look at something in this movie without either racing toward it, right, or yeah. having it pop out and be thrown at you. I just t- to me that got to be too much. I mean, our producer was just pointing out, and he's kind of right that Gatsby probably would have done it this way. That Gatsby right. himself is kind of Lerman-esque in his vulgar tastes, and he would have loved to be backed up by Rhapsody in Blue. Yeah, and I think again, you know, I've seen some criticism of the movie. Movie that uh, in just the you know the very early reviews that uh, I think maybe this is uh, Denby says that um, you know well uh, you know 
Fitzgerald is ultimately sort of critical of this vulgarity. But I, I don't think that's quite accurate. I mean, he's preserved. He preserves some. Uh, he pres- preserves some idealism about Gatsby himself, right? And there's that scene at the end where um, Nick says, "You know, you're worth all of them put together." They were rotten crowd. Yeah, they were rotten crowd, which, which is verbatim in the movie. Yes, right? absolutely, and 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 it's and I think done pretty well. And he sort of waves to him, and and you even get. I thought this was sort of unnecessary, but it, it's fine. Um, you get uh, Nick's thought again, direct from the book, that he was glad that he said that because it was the only time he ever complimented him. Um, but so there is some way in which uh, I think that you know fairly vulgar imagination is. Um, is respected on some level. You know, like, I mean, this movie, it's obviously so much about money and Gatsby didn't have it and he wanted it. And, you know, Fitzgerald ultimately doesn't condemn quite that, uh, that idea. Or maybe he blames the rest of the world for it, not Gatsby himself. But like that desire to have beautiful things it's Gatsby's form of transcendence in the yes. book, right? And so it is, it is respected in that sense. It's like his, his desires may be shallow and, and fatuous and overly focused on wealth, but it's not his fault in a way. Right. And I, yeah, exactly. And I think that, you know, what's the, the fault is, is, the, is uh, you know, Tom and, and Daisy who, who were born into money and who have this carelessness that is ultimately what sort of what's really damned is these, these wealthy people who, don't, who live without consequences and who make a mess of other people's lives. That's what really bothers him. Well, since, since we got to that, I think we should get to the, the car crash and the eyes of Dr. T.J. Eckelberg and the whole Valley of Ashes. If you've read the book, you know what we're talking about, the kind of violent climax of the movie. How, yeah. how, how did you think that worked as compared to the book and just as, as a piece of film? I mean, it's an, another you know, beautiful bit of production design. I mean, there's no mistaking it for anything but you know, a Valley of Ashes. It's really kind of just you know, sooty and, and, and grimy. You know, you and we should mention, in case you haven't read the book or haven't read it in a long time, this, is, this Valley of Ashes is essentially the sort of poverty-stricken stretch that separates wealthy East Egg and West Egg, Long Island, the fictional communities that they live in from, from Manhattan. So when, every time they make a jaunt into the city, they have to cross through the Valley of Ashes. Right. It's in Queens, basically. And it's, um, you know, sometimes people uh, fail to, to realize that, you know, at the time that Fitzgerald was writing, uh, Long Island was not anything near as developed as it is now. So, uh, you know, East Egg and West Egg are actually not that far away from the city. They're not out in the Hamptons. They're they're relatively close. Uh, so that yeah, there's this you know industrial stretch that uh, they have to cross through, and they actually go into Manhattan, and um, and then there's the the billboard, uh, which um, is you know some old faded uh, oculist, some eye doctor has has put up these two eyes, and I thought that was sort of just beautifully. Um, beautifully designed. It looks a bit like the the original cover yeah. for the book, and um, and I thought you know Isla Fisher as as uh, Myrtle you know has the requisite kind of you know sort of uh, voluptuous vitality um, manages to convey that on screen um, anyway. Um, and and then, Jason Clark in a small role as her her husband is great. I think. Yeah, I, I see. I, I thought it was maybe like a little bit hammy, but but you know. Generally, generally but good. But in keeping in keeping with the mood of the movie. <laughs> yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, every, everyone's hammy. So, um, and then ultimately, uh, you know, one night after, um, you know, Gatsby and, and Tom have had their throwdown, and he said, you know, Daisy must say she never loved you, and she refuses. And then he's he and Daisy are driving back together, um, angrily. Uh, Myrtle sees the car, thinking that it's it's Tom, and comes out 
to you know to stop him. Why would she think that the yellow convertible is Tom's? He's never driven that car. I th- is it, he's driving it on the way in. Oh, you're right. They switched right? cars. They switched okay. cars. So the idea, I think, is that yeah, that she saw them go into town, and Tom was in that car. And, and the idea, I mean, it's a very recognized. It's this incredibly, you know, uh, lavish, expensive. I think maybe even sort of personally made, custom made car. So you, and it's you know, this bright yellow. So you would recognize it immediately, and she runs out to, to stop it, and they slam right into her. And it's, you know, one of these extravagant moments, which I think basically worked for me. It, but, you know, there, I, I, I did find myself sort of pausing and kind of waiting to cringe because you just know that. <laughs> you know there's going to be slow-mo yeah, body slow, flying through the air. Yeah, slow, and she's kind of flying through the air, and there's kind of glass coming at you, possibly in 3D. Um, and and you see it a couple of times, I think, maybe because there's a flashback. They're describing the scene. Um, but again, I mean, that's another moment that's pretty uh, pretty over the top in the book as well. I mean, the thing I was glad Lerman didn't do is in the book you get a pretty graphic description of her left breast being torn off and kind of flapping. It's horrible. Uh, and, and, you know, fortunately, Lerman spares us that we see her dead, but it's, you know, relatively decorous. You know, I think I feel about the car crash about like I feel about the rest of the movie, which is that I sort of watched it with this combination of eye rolling and ecstasy. <laughs> you know, right. I mean, at once I was sort of thinking, we get it, Boz, especially when we revisit the slow-mo Isla Fisher flying through the air, hitting the car. You know, he's he really has to just hit everything so hard. And, you know, there's there's moments when Tobey Maguire's narration will say one thing and then Leonardo DiCaprio's dialogue will basically repeat it. Right. right. So Toby says in voiceover. You know, we had a serious talk about his past. And then next thing you know, Leo's saying, old sports, let's have a serious talk about the past. You know, there was way too much of that kind of doubling. But that said, I was kind of enraptured for two hours. I mean, we saw this at the Ziegfeld at this beautiful Art Deco palace in New York. And, you know, you're sitting in a red velvet seat listening to Rhapsody in Blue and being wrapped up in these incredible flapper costumes. How can you not be caught up in it? They even gave us free popcorn. I didn't have any of the free popcorn. Uh, I should have, that would have completed my movie experience. Yeah, I mean, people should definitely make an evening of this and just enjoy the the spectacle. Uh, I, I do think there were times when when he took me out of it by just going, uh, you know, trying something that just ended up not working. So the most most egregious example of this for me is at one point. I mean, it's in that conversation. I think uh, that serious conversation on that, the dock. On the dock, which I, I just in general was sort of one of the weaker scenes. I thought, you know, sort of cutting between the two of them, and it, it just didn't. It just didn't quite uh, grab This is Gatsby me. and Nick on the dock. Gatsby and Nick. About. And then... And green Nick... light a flashing the whole time. Another thing that was hit too hard. I mean, <laughs> yes, the green many, light many is many a huge times. theme in the book as well, but it we is. don't need to see it every 10 minutes and talk about it. Right. And then, and in, the, in this case, uh, Nick wants to know what... Uh, what uh, Gatsby's letter to Daisy said that, you know, before she got married, you know, because they had, they had met when they were teens and he had to go off into the war and she was going to wait and then she didn't. And so he wants to know what this letter said. And for some reason, uh, Lerman decides to show us Daisy reading the letter uh, sort of in the clouds. And so you get her hair kind of flowing over because it's longer than when she's younger, kind of flowing over her head and fading into the clouds. And all I could think of was uh, Mufasa in The Lion King <laughs> appearing to his son. I mean, that's what it looks like. And then you get the kind of handwritten bit of the letter saying, I'm penniless, which I, actually I think he added. I have to check that. Uh, it it just – I mean, I just – started to chuckle a little bit in my seat. At the same time, I thought, well, you know, he's going to just throw it all up there and some of it will work and some of it won't. 
Yeah, any anytime letters were floating in the air, unfortunately, I could just really not get behind it, even when the words, the sentences that the letters were saying were, were beautiful. Yeah, and in fact, I think Edelstein maybe referred to the alphabet soup that you, mm-hmm. you do. You get something like <laughs> alphabet soup on the screen. Alphabets with little marshmallows floating. Yeah. All right, so let's get to the ending since we're spoiling and, and, and talk about what happens to to the whole gang after the uh, after the car crash, right? So uh, after the crash, uh, Tom and and this is something I th- I th- another thing I think Lerman d- does well, uh, where you know departing from the book, you actually see Tom tell Wilson, his mistress's husband, uh, that uh, it was Gatsby who was driving the car, and oh maybe it was Gatsby who was uh, sleeping with his wife because Wilson has started to he's realized that something's going on. He noticed that somebody had bought her a necklace or something and. Um, he wants to get her out west. So Tom makes him think that not only was it Gatsby driving the car, but it was probably Gatsby sleeping with his wife. And actually, this whole get this Gatsby character is, is shady. He's, I think he's a criminal. You know, someone should do something about him. So he plants this idea in Wilson's mind. Wilson takes a gun, goes over to, to Gatsby's mansion, um, finds him in his pool. Uh, which which you get straight that straight from the book. Although one one uh, detail I was sad to to see left out is that in in the book um, Gatsby has gotten an inflatable floater for the, for the pool and is you know floating along. Um, instead, uh, what Lerman does is have you know Leo put on an old fashioned swimsuit and dive majestically into his pool and then rise out of it uh, and then get you know plugged in the back uh, by Wilson and his gun. Who then and then Wilson then shoots himself uh, and that again it was another scene where I was kind of you know on the edge of my seat is he going to screw this up because you get this it's you know slow motion again if I'm not mistaken and you get this close up on, on Leo's face sort of as he's as he's dying and don't forget the phone call the suspense right. about the phone call right which is intercut in a way that I don't think happens in the novel does I don't it? yeah I'll need to check I don't think so so uh, he's waiting for a phone call from Daisy Gatsby is right thinking delusionally that the two of them are going to run away together and escape this whole car crash and uh, and instead the, and the phone does ring just as he's about to be shot as he's emerging from the pool but it turns out to be Nick yeah to be Nick I think that's all added I, you know I, th- I think it sort of it works well it gives the sort of uh, dignity to his death because he thinks that Daisy has called him and at sort of at the, the moment of his death he thinks that you know it's all going to work out in the end after all uh, and then you know he falls away into the pool um, so you know it, it's again it's another of these moments that sort of you know, vastly melodramatic uh, but it's a fairly melodramatic story yeah the, the Leo slowly sinking I have to say yeah I, I have no I have no problem with that ending as over the top as it was the, the kind of operatic moment that he's sinking I can't remember what the music is in the background but the music is, is pretty intense there too I think it is soundtrack music not a, not a pop song yeah I think so and then you see him kind of uh, drifting in the water there for a moment and there's sort of light coming up from s- some mysterious source uh, and then it it uh, I think cuts to his his funeral, which is done a little differently. I mean, there's this whole thing about Nick uh, trying to get anyone to come, and and nobody will. I mean, you know, Gatsby. That's the whole idea, right? That he was surrounded by all these fancy people, but he didn't actually have any friends. So no one will come to his funeral. I think in the book, there's there's actually one person who shows up, and if I'm not mistaken, it might be the the guy that they meet in the library um, earlier on. And I kind of wondered if if that character. Um, he was so elaborately bearded and bespectacled, that guy. I thought for sure we would see him again. I wonder if, if he got cut. Yeah, that was sort of like the planted gun in the first act that never goes off, that guy. Yeah. 
So then the next thing we see, or the last, almost last thing we see, is Tom and Daisy's story wrapping up, right? The, the careless Buchanans who are going off with their daughter, who we see only once. She actually makes more appearances in the book than she does in, in the movie, right? She's completely taken care of by nurses, and her mother seems completely indifferent to her. The three of them are taking off for Europe, escaping, you know, escaping their own sins, essentially. And and that's the last we see of them. Yeah, and, and uh, Nick calls trying to get Daisy to come to the funeral and uh, their servant, whoever it is, won't even pass the phone to her. They're sort of shushing, shushing him off. And, uh, and I thought, uh, you know, uh, Edgerton, I think, is great. He's perfect. Joel Edgerton. Joel Edgerton. As, he's perfectly cast, this kind of hulking uh, man, as, as uh, Tom Buchanan is described. And I think he gets the voice right. And the other interesting thing is that he's a, <clears throat> excuse me, he's a horrible person, Tom Buchanan. Uh, but in one of the challenges of the story is the idea that you know that Daisy falls for him on some level that there's something, and and I actually think that that came across pretty well uh, in those final scenes. First in the scene when she refuses to tell Gatsby that she never loved him, and then when they're going off. I mean, I mean Daisy herself is is you know kind of horrible on some level as well, and you know he's impressive enough in the movie. That you feel like, oh, sure, she could be swept off. Yeah, he, her well, feet he has that brute animal force that Fitzgerald describes, right? Which is the yeah. thing that, that draws her to him. And the, and there's that that scene when uh, you know that that showdown. Um, I think it's at the plaza when uh, when Gatsby tries to get um, Daisy away from him and 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 you know claim her finally for for himself. Um, you know, he he has a great job of riling up. Gatsby of putting him down in this way that he knows he can because he has old money and and Gatsby's nouveau riche and, and vulgar and he kind of just you know jabs him with that over and over again until um, Gatsby just snaps and there's a line that comes straight from the book where uh, Nick says it looked in that moment like maybe he he did kill a man <laughs> um, which was this rumor about him and that that clearly I mean that's sort of the end that's that's the 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 mirage has. Um, has vanished, and even Daisy sees. Okay, there's something a little bit scary about this guy, uh, and I, I. It's again a, a completely over the top. I mean, DiCaprio kind of goes crazy, but it it, it works. Let's talk about the very ending and um, the very famous last sentence, and you know how that how that last moment of reaching for the green light is staged. Yeah, again, you know, this is some of that language clearly that Lerman, you know, wanted, needed to get into the movie and so made part of, you know, Nick's book. And so you see him typing away and uh, and then you see that that those famous last lines about how I should just read it, right? I've got the book in front of me. It's short. He says um these are the lines that we actually get in the movie is that these last two paragraphs says Gatsby believed in the green light, which of course we we see again uh, in that moment. Gatsby believed in the green light, the orgastic future that year by year recedes before us. It eluded us then, but that's no matter. Tomorrow we will run faster, stretch out our arms farther, and one fine morning. So we beat on, boats against the current, borne back ceaselessly into the past. So that last sentence is, you know, typed out on the screen over um, the stars. Sky, yeah, right? over stars. There might be another shooting star in there. There are a few of them. Uh, and then we see um, Nick you know, put his manuscript all together into a box, I think, and it says Gatsby, the title, and then he scrawls over it, the great, uh, on top. And uh, and I believe it 
fades out, is my memory. So the last point. we see is the top page of his manuscript? I think so. It's because then the title of it with the, that handwritten, The Great, and then Gatsby kind of like it, it's sort of at the center of the screen. It's sort of superimposed. I, I don't remember it precisely, but that's my lasting image of the kind of finale there. To me, that is just one layer of hoke too many. I mean, already, I'm glad the last sentence is in there. You know, I, I, I don't begrudge him just stealing that great prose and tacking it onto the end of the movie. I'll even accept it being printed against the sky. But then when we go back to Tobey Maguire neatly stacking his papers, I don't know, it, 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 it adds, it's not just that it's, it's too much. It's that it, I don't think that is true to the end of the book exactly. It's like a sense of accomplishment or something. Like, I've become a writer. I, that doesn't seem to have anything to do with right exactly and actually there's another um, there's a way in which the, uh, characters ki- keep referring back to Nick as someone who's going to be a writer in a way that I think is added I mean he he says in the book that he was a literary man at Yale and he sort of had these ambitions but that's sort of hit on again and again and yeah you get a sense that oh now he is he has accomplished that right it turns the book into like a buildings roman in a way that it completely isn't you know yeah and I and also I just it doesn't really seem necessary I mean I think you could have gotten that language. And you could have had that voiceover. You know, we're, I think f- movie audiences are pretty used to to over the top voiceovers. They don't have to sound like natural speech all the time. So I, I did ultimately feel like that was sort of a mistake. But overall, you would still send people to this movie without reservation. Absolutely, I'd probably go back myself. I will probably see it again too. I wish I could see it again before writing on it to sort of figure out how it's all put together. But I think. I would sit through it with considerably more eye-rolling than you. And more popcorn this time. Yeah, maybe popcorn will help the second time around. Okay, David, thanks so much for coming in. Let's spoil another movie soon. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Dana. Our producer is Chris Wade. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.